Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Anna Bogutskaya. On the show this week, we have a new arrival from director Pedro Almodovar, the postnatal drama Parallel Mothers. We also have an interview with Almodovar himself. Then Romola Garay makes her directorial debut with the haunted horror Amulet. And in Film Club, you voted for Pedro and picked a classic, All About My Mother. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Hannah. Anna Bogotskaya, an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the podcast again. It's been a while, and definitely the first time since we revamped the show in the sort of in this remote recording era. And whenever we have a guest on for the first time in a while, I like to embarrass them and ask them the big existential question: Who are you, and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I I am less than a human being michael all i do is sit in my house and record little podcasts and watch my little movies that is all that i am (laughs) and i don't think there would have been a better combination of films Mm -hmm. to have me back on the revamped truth of movies because i am both uh spanish i am both uh (laughs) horror fan (laughs) and um have kind of have worked with almodovar so this is kind of an episode designed for all my interests, so I'm very excited to to talk about both of these movies. Absolutely, perfectly suited. So, run us through a couple of those those particular points in your biography, then, because you do several podcasts. Um, <laughs> which one should we focus on to let the listeners know what you do? So, uh, probably the most relevant one is the Final Girls podcast, and we're currently looking at teen horror. We're in the middle of the of the teen horror season. Comes out every Friday, and actually, I've got an interview with Romola Garay herself, the director of Amulet, going out uh, on the pod this Friday. So, so probably look out for that. And we're the most recent episode will be Cherry Falls, which will be landing on Shutter after being kind of in in streaming no man's land for a very long time. Uh, a forgotten, semi-forgotten 2000 uh, slasher film with Brittany Murphy. So we're now entering the new millennium of teen horror, and I'm very excited because it's going to be uh, a lot of rediscoveries and a lot of trash, which is the area of cinema that I love to live in. Yeah, a lot, a, re- re- revisiting a lot of uh, yeah, teenage films we've seen when we were teenagers, I suppose. Exactly. That's, God, what a, what a trip that will be. Hannah, how are you doing? I guess you're right in the middle of Sundance, or are things wrapping up soon? 
Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of, uh, we're in the, the home stretch now. I think I've watched all my films actually as of last night. Um, so I am, yeah, like a broken husk of um, uh, films, mostly middling, sadly, um, uh, without the kind of joy of getting to go and uh, swan around Park City for two weeks. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's uh, been a busy period and obviously I'm like settling in still to my new job at Little White Lies. So I've been commissioning a lot um, and editing a lot as well. Mm. But yeah, it's it's been a been some uh, some good kind of gems amongst all the usual kind of uh, festival detritus. Um, I really liked Lena Dunham's new film to my like shock because I'm not really a big fan of her work normally. And uh, I saw this horror film Piggy last night, which I, I very much enjoyed. So yeah, some some good things to look out for coming our way, hopefully. And lots of coverage over at lwlies.com, first look reviews. Yeah, yeah, a lot of coverage. We normally, um, we don't really go big on Sundance, but this year we've done quite a lot. I want to say there's about 20 reviews. So wow. uh, yeah, head over there and check it out if you haven't get an idea for what uh, good stuff to look out for this year there is. Yeah, they've gone much more remote than some other festivals have, haven't they, this year? So a lot more people seeing a lot more films, more buzz around on social media. I suppose that's the trade-off. You're getting more oxygen in your air because you're not at high <laughs> altitude, but you are also staying up at all hours <laughs> on, on, yeah. on American time. I've certainly, yeah, because all the premieres are in um, mountain time, which is eight hours behind the UK, so there's quite a big difference. Um and I know quite a few people have been staying up. I haven't been staying up. I'm sleep deprived enough as it is. But um, yeah, Sundance, I have to say, like they did a virtual festival last year and they are one of the kind of best virtual festival experiences. They're so organised. And uh, even this year, they had to pivot quite last minute from a hybrid to purely online. And I think they've actually done very well with it. And it's all worked very smoothly and uh yeah it's kind of i think a good model for how other virtual festivals should try and uh, set their tech up and everything so yeah it's uh yeah check out all the coverage at uh, the website for keen and some films in the mix might come out soon might come out in <laughs> two years film that we're talking about later amulet was at sundance 2020 so yeah. <laughs> you might be hearing about the film and then not hearing about it again for a while but uh, check out that coverage at lwlies.com but we've got plenty to get through this week we have two new releases we have film club we also have an interview with one of the directors so we should kick things off first with our review of parallel mothers Let's have a bit of plot set up for Parallel Mothers. Two women meet in a hospital room where they are going to give birth. Both are single and became pregnant by accident. Janice, middle-aged, doesn't regret it and she is exultant. The other, Anna, an adolescent, is scared, repentant and traumatised. The few words they exchange creates a very close link between them, which by chance develops and complicates and changes their lives in a decisive way. So, Anna... Bogotskaya, not Anna, the character <laughs> this, from the film. This is going to get confusing real quick. <laughs> yeah. So let's set up Parallel Mothers. I mean, Pedro has been making films for 40 odd years or something now. Mm -hmm. So many, such a legacy behind him. But let's just start with Parallel Mothers. What should we expect? What mould is he working in? Well, 
very familiar territory in one in one sense. You know, this is uh, it's another piece of work with his long-standing collaborator Penelope Cruz. So obviously, he's been working with her since All About My Mother, which we'll which we'll talk about um, a little bit later, and and kind of using her as a central figure since Volver, mm-hmm. and and here he's also again kind of returning to this idea of motherhood, but it's a it's a very different take on motherhood. In fact. Mothers have always been present in his work ever since the beginning, but here they really take center stage and it's sort of three generations of mothers. It's also um, kind of like two films in one because alongside the main melodrama with Anna and Yanis, um, and then it's also with Anna and her own mother, played by Dana Sanchez Gijón, who's this incredible, she's not as well known outside of Spain, but she's extremely uh, an extremely revered actress in, in Spain. And alongside that, there's this whole parallel narrative around mass graves, which are this very um, dirty, open wound that remains uh, from Franco Spain, where a lot of people were were murdered in the in the Spanish Civil War and buried in unmarked mass graves. And there's a, there's been over a hundred thousand people that have been missing, that are still missing, and very few of those graves have been open, and certainly not. Um, not through efforts of the government. So it's actually Almodovar's first overtly, explicitly political mm-hmm. film where he's directly addressing the legacy of the Franco regime, where he is directly addressing the subject of mass graves and um, weaving it in with kind of larger and more emotional ideas around kind of memory, around um the closing of political wounds, the closing of generational trauma. Um, so it's it's kind of something completely new for him to be working with politics so explicitly in his work. Um, and at the same time, the recurrent familiar themes that make an Almodovar melodrama. Mm. And is it is that a successful new addition to the mix? And I suppose it's very different place differently for an international audience as we are to a, a Spanish audience. So uh, mm. is it successful in this case? Uh, I think so. And I watched it with um, I went to a screening to see it with an English friend of mine. And I was very curious because I, I tried to, especially with films that are very highly anticipating, I try to avoid as much as possible from them. So I'll, I won't kind of read massive synopsis, definitely won't read reviews. And I went in as fresh as possible into this. And after and as I was watching, it, I was wondering, oh, is is anyone who's not kind of familiar with Spanish history, which is so specific and kind of so such an oddball history, even within Europe, uh, get the specifics of this? And actually, I think from everything I've read and even talking to to my friend afterwards, like it's pretty obvious. I don't think you need the nuances of having grown up in Spain to understand what they're getting at. You know, mass graves are something that sadly has occurred in quite a lot of countries. It is very specific to its own history, but the way that the characters explain it, I think tries to, the way that the script deals with it, is trying to deal with it in an emotional way as opposed to a historical way. I don't think there's as much interest on the film's part of being historically nuanced and accurate, but rather tap into the emotional side of it, what it means and why people are still so concerned with, um, with you know, recovering and opening up and identifying people's remains in mass graves, which I think is something that can be related back to, well, you know, any kind of un, um, undealt with generational trauma, right? It's just, you just want to close a chapter that's an, that's an open wound. And I think the way that the film deals with it, even in the more subtle 
places through the dialogue, especially between Anna and Yanis, um, I thought was really, really brilliant. And I think actually the, the more kind of overt political statements work. But then I think the most nuanced ones are a couple of exchanges between the characters where you can sort of see that they come from completely different sides, from completely different, um, you know, stratas of society, stratas of privilege as well, even within Spanish society. And there's, you know, this big unspoken divide. And it's never made quite explicit, but the civil war was between the Franco supporters and the Republicans. So there's this kind of unspoken divide of, you know, who was your fa- who, which side was your family on at that time? And kind of how has that pa- been passed on to the family? And I thought that was so rich and so fascinating in kind of how they related to each other. Alongside, you know, how they connected to each other through their um, accidental motherhood. Yeah, it's, he's such a master filmmaker. It's something we talk about with almost every new release he has, how he can weave together this tapestry, this, this, this sort of these textured works. We just talked about it there in quite a lot of depth, but really it is so subtle all the way through. It is almost like the background narrative thread, but he brings it to the fore uh, the further it goes, and it's very arresting in, in, in the end and how it does build towards this sense of generational trauma as you said that there's leeching into the society um and how it affects approach to family how, how it pre- affects these generations going back but let's almost go back to the beginning and hannah so this is at the heart of it uh, a, a melodrama performance led almost as two-hander between um janice and anna uh, hannah what did you make of of, of parallel mothers yeah, so I'm not actually, um, I'm going to expose myself here, but I, I haven't actually seen that much of Pedro Malvador's work and it's not because I, um, I'm i not interested. It's just he's one of those directors where, you know, you want to kind of like sit down and take a few weeks and just kind of really dig in and I've just n- never kind of f- found the time, which, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I do uh, regret I need to remedy that because... What I have seen, I absolutely love. And I went to see Parallel Mothers, I think back in October. So after it premiered at Venice and David had said um, it was very good. So I kind of went in just thinking like, okay, you know, another another Pedro. He's very uh, prolific as well. He kind of does turn them out uh, pretty quick. So I was, you know, I really liked Pain and Glory. um, So I was excited. Um, And had a great time with it I think you know I it's interesting because I think um there's sometimes a perception of him maybe in the western kind of world as a a bit of like a um maybe what would the word be interior decorator (laughs) well yeah a kind of like aesthetic based filmmaker but Mm. obviously uh, I mean anyone that's kind of really dug in knows that's quite far from the truth he loves beautiful things Mm -hmm. but he you know, also kind of treats his characters with such care and such love and they're given such um, interiority. And I think he's always been one of the male filmmakers who I admire for the way he uh, writes and kind of portrays female characters in his films. He's really got like an amazing handle on womanhood and, uh, you know, you love to see it as far as male directors are concerned. but yeah, especially I think in Pain and Glory, uh, there was more talk about the refrigerator in the, like, his <laughs> kitchen, you know, in, in that amazing apartment and the weather film itself, which I think is a bit unfair, really, because, uh, 
yes, he does kind of have a real eye for um, set design, or, or I'm sure the team he works with, I should say, have a great eye as well. But um, yeah, I really was sort of blown away. I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm unusual in saying that I don't really have much of a knowledge of the uh, history of Spanish uh, culture and uh, and whatnot. So hearing Anna talk about this kind of uh, context of films really, really interesting because watching it, I did feel like as well as, um, you know, kind of getting swept up in this very uh, emotional, like romantic story, I felt like I was learning something and um, learning something about a culture, which is, you know, Spain's very close to England. It's only a couple of hours away on the plane. But I think um, because it's not, we don't have the same history with Spain that we have with somewhere like France, where we've been at war for years. I think um, for a lot of British people, they might not kind of be aware of this very longstanding um, uh, trauma and kind of... um, cultural history that Pedro is like explicitly talking about in this film so um as a kind of ignorant British person I was like really you know I I, it was it felt great to kind of be immersed in this totally other world but also I think that and Anna kind of touches on this you don't really need to know that um whole history to kind of get something out of it and to um get where he's coming from I think rooting that side of the story in this um, almost domestic drama of these two women becoming mothers for the first time is such a smart way to weave together two things that could be seen as quite disparate and that it's, yeah, no, it's all anchored by these incredible like twin performances which are so different and the characters themselves couldn't be kind of um, operating on more different levels. (laughs) But... um, the chemistry between Penelope Cruz and uh, Milena Smith is like off the charts. It's, it's, you know, they're just such a joy. Like every scene where they're together, I just kind of wanted it to go on forever. You know, you're kind of waiting, you're sitting there like waiting for the shoe to drop for both characters. You're like, where's this going? I know I'm watching a Malvidar film. And then, uh, you know, you get there. You, I don't want to spoil it too much for people that haven't seen the film, but um, yeah, just, he's, he's so, brilliant at casting actors who really kind of um have that spark and that's not always easy we see a lot of big big films where they'll put two amazing talented beautiful people together and there's just nothing Mm -hmm. you know it's just like a blank kind of no energy uh whereas even like between the kind of secondary characters so we have um arturo who's the um the father of yeah yanis's baby and we have Elena who is Yanis's boss slash best friend played by Rossi De Palma who's obviously you know long time Pedro collaborator and kind of iconic in his oh, it's amazing so good and oh, she's she's such a scene stealer well. oh I mean yeah I've not even kind of touched on that so in the, <laughs> in the film in the film yeah uh, yeah this place um she's a photographer for a fashion magazine and the just as you would expect the most incredible outfits and you know it is like you just want to kind of I, I would happily live in an Alma Vidal film but yeah he's it's despite the fact it is you know kind of all about these two mothers it's really an ensemble film like there's not a kind of weak link in the chain and I just had a, a real like you know it's not a laugh a minute film but it's definitely funny 
all of his films are. And um, yeah, I had, a, I had a really great time with it. I was so glad that I um, went to see it. And I think it's a shame it's not kind of getting more love in the awards conversation. You know, Penelope should be up there with the uh, Oscar frontrunners. Well, before we move on to scores, let's have a quick, quick word word about Penelope. Anna, um, is, is she doing good work here? Uh, David in his oh, review God, yes. in the magazine said she saves her A game for Pedro. <laughs> it's it, she's she, I think he really does bring out something different in her. Um, mm. I think some of her the best performances in her career, I mean, you know, bar a few that kind of spring to mind uh, across kind of the decades of Penelope acting are in Pedro's films. There's just something about the way that he films her that just makes her so much of a movie star with capital M and capital S. Like she just belongs on the screen in a different way. And there's so many different kind of ranges of emotion. And also she's, uh, you know, compared to the previous work together that they've done, she's a mother now herself. And now she's playing a mother with the real lived experience of it. And I think there's definitely, not that that's something explicit in the in the text of the film, but you can feel that there's a different approach to, to handling parenthood, to handling even a baby, and to reacting to this, to the kind of extreme melodramatic situations that she that her character is placed on in the film you know she's going into a completely different level of depth with with the role of Janice and and you know like we were talking about before it's like Hannah was mentioning the the kind of the domesticity of it all most of this film it happens inside it happens inside her apartment frankly also I've I've had dreams about that apartment <laughs> since I saw this film. I want to live there. I used to live in Madrid and I was like, where is that? I want to live in that place. I would like to rent it. That little terrace in the middle of the apartment next to the kitchen. Jesus. I'm like, this is just designed straight out of my brain and into the screen. But anyway, the fact that it's such a beautiful world to inhabit makes you forget the fact that it does all happen in this quite small um, Madrid apartment, they mostly kind of go down to the bar, which again is the most Spanish thing ever. They just go down to the bar and have breakfast there <laughs> and have like deep, intense conversations on a cheap aluminium table. Um, so these kind of small details, just despite being such a small kind of all-encompassed situational domestic film, it just feels so grand because of the performances mm -hmm. and especially because of Penelope. Penelope can just be in a, in a t-shirt with like breast milk stains on her and still be the most glamorous, beautiful, watchable movie star you've ever seen on a big screen. And, and I think kind of there's this thing of being consumed by her on a big screen that I really, I really hope people kind of go to see it in the cinemas because there is something very radically different about being involved in an Almodovar world um, when you're in the cinema. So let's put some scores on this, Anna. So this is um, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect, out of five. Um, can I be real basic and just go five, five, five? That's what David Jenkins did for, in the magazine. You're absolutely allowed to. <laughs> Hannah, what would you give it? Um, I think purely from a point of my Pedro ignorance, four, four, and then... You know, I, I am toying between a four and a five. I think I need to watch it again, which would probably bump it up to a five. So mm. four, 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 he four, 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 but possibly a five when I get uh, around to watching it again. I do think it is kind of in a in a pretty great year for cinema, despite the pandemic. I do think it is one of the standouts. Mm -hmm. Four, four, four from me and 
and actually relating to your point, Anna, I didn't see this in the in the cinema, so I didn't see it in the big screen. I couldn't be consumed by Penelope Cruz, which almost sounds like something that we'd see in a horror film. But <laughs> I meant I would like to see that horror film. I would like to see it. <laughs> but Parallel Mothers is such a treat, and it is very easy to take Pedro for granted because he's so prolific and so uh, consistent. But he's such a consummate filmmaker, delightful on the eye. His films, but so, but they're not museum pieces. We 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 talk about filmmakers week in week out who create craft, well craft their worlds. But this one is so alive, and the storytelling, the twists and turns of the narrative, and then giving you food for thought if you want to go and read about Spanish history afterwards. But listeners, that's Parallel Mothers. We're not quite finished with it just yet, though, because David Jenkins, the White Lies resident Pedro superfan, had the chance to speak with the man himself, talking about parenthood, Penelope, and becoming an adjective in the movie-making dictionary. Let's listen to that interview now. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. How, how long had you been interested in this idea of new mothers and babies and the kind of dramatic potential and the dynamic of, of, of the mother and the baby? Because that's, I'm thinking back and that feels like something quite new for you. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I mean, the, 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 the Spanish society and the, in general, um, the motherhood is, is, is a subject that it changed a lot in the last, let's say, 20 or 30 years. And family, too. I mean, now, I mean, for example, a woman that uh, wants to be a mother uh, when he's 40, I mean, see that, I mean, a female doesn't need now. Uh, to be married, or even she doesn't need even to to have a sexual relation to have it. So you know all that subject changes a lot, and and uh, and as I made so many different mothers in my past, so I wanted. I mean, if I read, if I approach this subject, should be some something new for me. And for example, for example. Uh, for me, it was completely new to talk about a mother that doesn't have maternal instinct. Uh, 
it even and that that was very attractive to write for the first time this or or a mother so young like Milena Smith is in the movie. Um, so I mean, in in general, I mean families and the relation uh, of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, and this is this is an eternal an et eternal theme that you can make a thousand different movies. I mean, you can make Sound of Music about what a family is, and uh, you can make also Goodfellas uh, or The Godfather. Uh, and all they are talking about families and relation between fathers and, uh, and sons. Uh, so I think it's an eternal theme that uh, perhaps I will do more, <laughs> more movies in the future. I don't know, I don't know. Um, no, not, not immediately. Not the immediate, the, the, the immediate one, uh, it will is a different subject. But, um, but I'm fascinated about the relation, uh, basically uh, mothers and daughters. I, I have a small daughter and watching this film was very anxiety inducing. Um, and I think that one of the things it captures really well is the anxieties of being a mother and the kind of I guess the disasters of, 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 of what can happen. And, and that's something you really don't see in cinema a lot. And I, it's intriguing that you've taken on that subject. You know, I took the advantage that Penelope is a mother and is a very, how can, how can I say, I don't, is a very paranoid mother. I mean, she's taken care uh, of, of her kids. Um, I mean, the whole day. I mean, she doesn't shoot if, if he's not close to Madrid or if um, her husband, Javier, uh, couldn't. I mean, they, they have 11 and 8 years. Um, they never uh, leave them alone. So it's, um, uh, for me, it was a very good reference because um, she told me many things that I didn't know about how to treat a baby. I mean, this kind of anxiety. Uh, and to be almost paranoid that something is going to happen. Um, because I think this is very, very typical of the new mothers, um, to have that fear and to have that kind of uh, even guiltiness. Um, there's, so there's something Hitchcockian about babies. You, when you yes. see a baby in a film, yes, you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. Uh, so um, um, Penelope told me, uh, some sometimes um, uh, about the best way to to treat the baby because I remember, for example, one of the sequences um, that um, when 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 he's with Milena with the other actress and the, uh, Milena went out. I mean, she was so frightened that she has to go immediately to the room to take the baby and be sure that nobody is going. To steal her, um, so this kind of that that it was suggested by her, and that kind of really real anxiety. And I understand that. I read read somewhere that you said that Penelope, you you had this idea for the film quite a long time ago, around the time of all all about my mother, and you had sort of mentioned it to Penelope back then. Is, I mean, I'm just intrigued. Do you when you write? Do you have actors in mind for when you're writing characters, or and does that change what? Yeah, you're not writing? usually. I mean, in, I mean, in this case, I was thinking about Penelope, 
But, um, and when I wrote Volver, also I have Penelope in my mind. But usually as my subjects mm, change so much during the, the, the develop of the, of, the, of the script, sometimes change of gender or, or, I mean, everything is changing during, and I, and I rewrite a lot of times the script. So uh, I can start uh, with a character that at the end is someone completely different. So I don't, I don't, I don't put faces uh, in the characters till the moment that I, at least, uh, I don't have the first draft. When I had the first draft is when I start thinking about the actors. And um, I mean, with Sun Obsession, for example, Time Me Up, Time Me Down, I, was, I thought about Antonio. Uh, Women on the Verge of a Never Play Down, I thought about Carmen Maura. But the rest is just when I finish, I try to give, um, to, to, to give the character to someone that I know because, I mean, you feel more secure. But uh, so if there is something good that fits well to Penelope or Antonio or, or some other actress uh, that, I, that I worked with before, then, I mean, uh, I do it. If not, then I, I make some audition. No, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't do it uh, personally, but there is a director of casting mm -hmm. that does it for me. And with Melina, were you, were you casting as a kind of counterpoint to, to Penelope? Like, I'm really intrigued as to like, I think w w one of the interesting things about the film is there is a kind of odd couple vibe to their relationship. They're, they're very completely different generations and types of person. So what were you looking for in Melina that you found? Um, uh, what, what I look for for Melina was uh, this kind of, I mean, what, what she is, someone very young that doesn't have experience that also, also she's pregnant because an accident that looks like a rape. And, uh, and also this kind of people of the, the new generation that doesn't have one real idea about the history of Spain. And, and also, uh, and, uh, and I wanted also someone very good as an actress because it's very deep what she has to do. And uh, I was very lucky to find her. Uh, I mean, because yes, when I saw her, um, the first audition, I decided that it was for her. And uh, it's, for me, it was an epiphany to find her. Uh, and I'm sure that she's going to work a lot because she's extremely talented. And also physically can be someone very different. Uh, can be very different women, but uh, unfortunately, they they have a good, very good chemistry between Penelope and her, and this is something that you discover when when you put them together, uh, rehearsing. Um, so and um, and but what I what I what I needed it was a very good actress and very young, that. Uh, is difficult because, of course, the very young people doesn't have experience. But in this case, uh, she has she has a quality that the camera loves. Everything, every small thing that Milena does, the camera take it. And this is something that only happens sometimes uh, with the actors. 
that uh, they are bigger than what do you think they are do you, is that something you see on the set or is that something that comes later when you're seeing the the rushes and the edit editing room and the the, the finished assembly is that are you is it very present that you you can see these things you happening? know you discover that uh, after shooting mm-hmm. i mean i w- what i discovered because we rehearse a lot uh, that she was good enough for the character and uh, and and also that they were chemistry between them they became close friends immediately but i was and this is a kind of miracle when that happens um i remember very well the first the really first uh, shot uh, with her that i was amazed uh, she she grew up so much uh, in front of the camera that um, the, the, but this is something that you discover because you know the camera has even if it's a machine has their own taste so i mean make bigger people that they are not make more beautiful more funny or or just reject an actor or that can be good uh, i also saw that that good actresses or good actor that the camera doesn't love him and react in a very you know depends many times depends not only of the quality of the performance but uh, the mystery of being photogenic and it doesn't mean to be beautiful because i mean for example uh, milena is very beautiful and can be much beautiful than it is in the movie is beauty the key then is beauty the key yes <laughs> uh, but for example n- n- rossi de palma is not exactly what you can say a beautiful woman it has a very unbalanced face uh, with a broke nose uh, eyes with different colors and different size but she's photogenic but very photogenic. the camera <laughs> loves her uh, so sometimes it's, it doesn't depend to be really I mean beautiful, but you know the the yeah being photogenic is a mystery that only the camera knows. <laughs> I I would love to know, like I guess it's my final question. The you, there are certain directors who have who have been making films long enough and who have been successful long enough, who have become like who who become an adjective, as in you can say. A film is like David Lynch or Spielberg, and you you have become that now. Where people use you to describe other things, you have your st- certain style. Is that how do you feel about that? It's weird, you know. When you feel, I mean, when you see, when you listen, that your name be, became an adjective, uh, and you know, it happens in Spain at least. Uh, in Spain, it happens immediately. I mean, after. Th- after the first three movies, they start talking. This is very Almodovarian, um, and uh, because you know sometimes when the when the people when the followers say that, many times they are mistaken. <laughs> they are not. I mean, I don't feel identified <laughs> with that. But no, I I I can understand what they mean. Um, is is weird because I don't. I mean. I mean, I feel like a regular person. I don't feel like, uh, I mean, when, when I see myself in the mirror, when I see as a human being, 
that is aging. And this is what it is. I mean, and I'm like, like the rest of the world. But um, this kind of uniqueness, um, I mean, it's good because people just recognize you as someone different. But um, I don't feel myself different. I know that I do my movies in my own way. Um, and this is the, 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 the power of being a director. Um, but, um, but this is, well, I mean, the, 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 this is the way that I see to be a storyteller. I have one more question. I'm really excited that you're going to be, that it's announced that you're going to be adapting Lucia Berlin um, short stories. And I hope so because well, we have started now oh, with okay. the project. <laughs> and but I'm interested in this idea that because you did um, Alice Monroe yes. for, for for Julieta, and I, it's it, it's kind of interesting that you're taking short stories and making features out of them. Which what is there something about short stories you find that are good for? Well, adaptation? you know, it's curious. I don't know why. I really don't know the reason. Uh, I mean, in the case of Alice Monroe, because uh, she wrote three short story with the same character and I just try to unify it. But with the, the, the main uh, uh, difficulty, it was when I tried to transfer to the Spanish society because he's, he's, I mean, the, 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 the family culture is completely the opposite uh, of Canada or United States. In this case, I feel, but I love them. I love the, that the stories, and it was very tough to do it, to write it. But in this case, it was quicker because the the character, all the female characters of Lucia Berlin, I feel very close to them. I mean, I don't have the talent of Berlin, uh, but um, I, I identified completely with that characters. Uh, all they are on the stream, uh, all they have a lot of sense of humor, no prejudice at all, and they are a kind of adventurers. Um, so, I mean, it's, when I read the book, it's a perfect material for me. Um, so, what I make it was just to, to select five short stories and to make, to, to, to make one, uh, to convert them into one unique story. And I did that, so the script is already done. And uh, well, the new thing is that not only, well, the, 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 it's very new, uh, but it will be very, what you could say, a modovarian. Uh, you, could, you could identify that characters that belongs to me too. The big difference is that it will be in another language um, it, that is English. So I, well, you know, the only experience that I have, it was when I direct um, Tilda Swinton in The Human Voice. And I was very happy, really. And that uh, I have a lot of fear to to just to to to, to shoot something in English. But I lost part of the fear when I when I shoot ah. with Tilda. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited. Thank you so much. That no, no, thank you. You're, to you. you're welcome. Thank you so much to Pedro Almodovar for talking with us, and thank you to David for picking up that interview as well. Sounds like I had a great time. Up next, we have horror movie Amulet. Let's do some 
plot synopsis for Amulet. Thomas, an ex-soldier, returns from a foreign conflict and finds himself living in strange circumstances. Haunted by his past, he is offered a place to stay in a decaying, claustrophobic house, inhabited by an enigmatic young woman and her dying mother. As he starts to fall for his new companion, Thomas cannot ignore his suspicion that something insidious might also be living alongside them. So, Hannah, how do we start talking about a film like Amulet? Very much positioned as this debut horror movie. It's been talked about as a post-Me Too horror movie, part of this wave of female filmmakers uh, finding great success in the horror genre. But where should we start? Um, That's a great question. I guess we we should start kind of with um, Sundance, maybe, which has Mm. a a very rich history of kind of launching these... um, horror movies so you know Blair Witch premiered there all those years ago ancient thinking about that um but then recently you know Get Out and Hereditary kind of made their big debut so um you know there's a good there's a good providence I think for uh, horror at Sundance and Amulet played there um gosh 2020 just Mm -hmm. before the pandemic it feels like a lifetime ago um so I actually saw the film at Sundance out in uh, Utah and uh, very much enjoyed it. I mean, the entire reason I went to see it was because I'm a big fan of um, Alex Sekimahu from, uh, of course, most listeners will know him from God's Own Country, uh, possibly Ammonite, the um, Francis Lee films. And I think he's wonderful and doesn't kind of get enough roles. I'm always asking, like, when am I going to see him again? So, um, yeah, I was very uh, excited to see him do a horror movie. And I know, obviously, Roma, Romola Garay from... Um, her many, many film roles. She's been working for a long time, uh, particularly not a film role, but um, The Hour, the BBC show, uh, which is, I don't think a lot of people did watch, but it's very good and you should make time (laughs) about a a kind of news production team in the 50s, I think it's, uh, I might be wrong, but anyway by the by so yeah i was quite um quite intrigued uh, knowing very little about this as we often do at festivals and i do kind of nowadays get the um get the fear when someone says post me to horror just because it's you know i i am i think we're at that point now where it's about trauma isn't enough of a like kind of like selling point for the film I kind of am asking for more um from my filmmaking and I was very taken with Amulet which didn't kind of get a big you know a big buzz out of the festival like some films do but I think it's um a really sort of creepy um inventive like twist on the you know like um haunted house the the devil house type uh trope and takes the kind of um conventions of the genre you know you expect the kind of young woman to be um terrorized and basically swaps it around so you have this uh, final guy instead of a final girl but you kind of realize the more the film goes on your sympathies get questioned and it has kind of one of the funniest, like bleakest endings, I think, um, in quite some time. I don't want to at all ruin it. But, and also, 
I have to say, I hadn't clocked when I saw when I kind of sat down in my seat to watch it that Imelda Staunton was in it. <laughs> and any any film where you have Imelda Staunton playing a, a smoking nun um, <laughs> is like you know gonna like immediately get a little bump from me. And just really fun to see her in a horror film. It's so like out of her wheelhouse in terms of like I think what people would expect from Imelda Staunton. Um, but she's having a blast. I just like I really enjoyed watching her. Um, kind of get to do something that isn't a bit of a stuffy British period drama. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's one of this year's kind of underrated horror um, kind of efforts, and particularly British horror. I think you know we're so lucky to be living in. We've always Britain's always done horror well, but I think we're living in a kind of a really good, exciting time for particularly. And Anna will be able to speak to this more in a second, but I think British female horror directors were kind of really uh i feel like there's loads coming through at the moment and it's it's very exciting as someone who loves a horror movie i yeah i'm kind of thrilled that we're getting our own kind of uh, stable of really like not only like great filmmakers but really inventive filmmakers who aren't just kind of um giving us kind of remakes or revamps it's all kind of fresh and i think the story here although it does kind of um draw from kind of existing uh, tropes and kind mm -hmm. of things we've seen before it does enough with them that i had a really good time with it and uh, i'm very actually really excited to go and see it again i, I might go to the cinema for this one guys i might like oh <laughs> you know it's, it's it's not often i go to the cinema to see something twice but um you know i think this is kind of this is one that it's really fun to be around other people because there are some like wild things like wild visuals um, in this film yeah it, it, it uh, plays its card cards close to its chest for the majority of the film but it does go in wild places <laughs> before the credits so anna with the final girls you've been at the forefront of this sort of critical programming advocacy of women in horror over the last decade or so so how does amulet fit into all of that and what did you make of it so I just want to I just want to add something because we were laughing about this before we hit record. Michael keeps adding decades on to me. <laughs> Has it not been 10 years yet? <laughs> 6 no. years, 4 years, four, I don't know. You know what? It's okay. I'm a vampire, Michael. Let's we, go we, with that. Let's go with that. It's been 5 years since 2020 already. Do <laughs> you know what? You are you are correct, my friend. So yes. So last century, uh, I started <laughs> the final girls. <laughs> Um, <laughs> next time we do this podcast I'm just going to bring my Gary Oldman Dracula wig <laughs> <laughs> um, yes so I've been very very passionate about the, the female horror renaissance as I kept I started calling it a few years ago and now it's like you know, everybody's saying this because it's suddenly become very apparent, I think, since the year, basically since around 2014, kind of there's been this not even slow bubbling, but quite intensely bubbling wave of female horror directors that have nothing to do with each other stylistically or even thematically a lot of the time come from all over the world. But Hannah's right. In the last couple of years in from Britain, the most interesting thing films that have come out have been horror films, I'd say. And really, really 
original and inventive ones. I think it's really interesting that uh, kind of some of the most standout, um, critically well-received films from the la- horror films from the last half- couple of years are original screenplays and original ideas. And they happen to be written or co-written and made by female filmmakers. And very often also debut features, which I find kind of very, very heartening uh, about the state of, of British cinema. But uh, I had this on my radar since since it was announced in Sundance and when I finally got the chance to see it uh, it's it's going to be quite hard to talk about this film without going into spoilers but I think that's a good thing for listeners just to incite interest because I I had no idea what to expect once again I just knew I'd, I'd seen the poster I knew there was a nun of some kind involved so I'm like okay devil nun yes I'm into it then it's a haunted house and it's like this whole fairy tale vibe and it's Alec from God's Own Country one of the loveliest leading men uh, of recent years, I want to see more of him. Just this, the the kindest face, and putting that in a horror film, it's already kind of recipe for bad news for him. <laughs> but then, um, it just kept going into a completely wild direction. So when I thought that I had the film figured out, it just did a complete U turn and went in a completely different direction. To the point where towards the end, and I'm not going to say anything about the end. I was a, 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 I was literally clutching my metaphorical pearls because I had no idea what I was seeing, no idea what it had descended into. And I kind of love that about genre in general because it, ca- it can allow itself to go into these wild Bacchanalian like endings where everything makes sense, but it's creating an image that you've never seen before in your entire life. And and you kind of have to go with it. And you can, as long as it makes sense within the, the world of the film, it makes sense. So Amulet is one of those. And I think it's kind of, you know, to echo what Hannah was saying, I think it's kind of unfair to lump it in this whole, you know, post Me Too thing. Because, you know, films about female rage and uh, films about revenge and horror films that tackle those notions existed before Me Too happened. And... Just because a female filmmaker is making a horror film that deals with certain themes or has a certain um, tone to it does not mean it's aggressively trying to make a statement about Me Too. So there is, uh, you know, and Romola Gray has been very outspoken about her own experiences, obviously, as an actress and stuff like that. And she's talked, she's spoken a lot about anger as being the thing that has fueled this film. But when you watch this film, you feel it in this really simmering kind of way. It's not very in your face about it. She's very subtle in the way that she uh, creates the atmosphere, which is kind of very fairy tale esque. Like it's got a lot of kind of these elements of you know the the forest and the lost soldier and the very creepy kind of older woman. Um, there's someone in in an attic. Uh, so <laughs> there's a lot of these kind of disparate elements that all come together, but. I think one of the things that it succeeds in, and especially as a horror fan, is that you always kind of try to think that you're smarter than the film, but you always secretly want the film to outsmart you. And when the film outsmarts you, it's when you get the best possible horror watching experience is when you get, oh, you got me. Oh, you got me. Damn you. God damn. I thought I knew where this was going. And then you you did a U-turn on me. Okay, then I see it. I respect it. And that was my experience watching Amulet. (laughs) Wow, yeah, that, that sounds like high praise for, for such a hardened horror fan. But let's put some scores on Amulet. Um, Hannah, I'll come to you first for your three scores. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it, I'm very boring this episode, but I think it's probably 444 as well. Um, maybe a 344, 
just because sundown sometimes you know you, you go in with the highest hopes and then you you do get disappointed so i try and like temper myself um but yeah i i do think this is another kind of solid entry into the very nice little stable we're building uh, with the things like i mean this is a couple of years back now but things like prevenge and saint maud which i wasn't that big a fan of but i know i can appreciate the craft of that film and i know that a lot of people love it um and of course censor um by prano bailey bond which was um one of kind of last year's biggest um and best british debuts so yeah i uh, i think there's a lot to enjoy here and i hope people kind of uh, turn out for it because i do think if you're wanting kind of a fun night at the cinema this is liable to kind of be one of those anna um i'm gonna say 444 um because i'm i'm always highly anticipating any horror film made by made by a female filmmaker because of obvious final girls reasons um and and yeah i think it's the fact that i i became the surprise cat gif by the end of it was <laughs> i think merits a four in both enjoyment and retrospect <laughs> Oh, wonderful. I really don't want to seem like I'm I'm doing it down by saying it's something with 333 for me, but I I wish I'd seen this in like a fright fest type situation because where this goes with an audience that would be really fun. For the majority it's quite a, one of those whispery creepy films, uh, although Melda Staunton is great value as well. But that's Amulet's <laughs> Um, definitely go and check out uh, interviews with Ramala Garai as well. Anna, do you have her on the podcast coming up? I do, yeah. Uh, I've got Ramala uh, on the Final Girls podcast and that interview should be out now. Mm, brilliant. She's, yeah, it's great to hear her speak about cinema. She's such a film fan as well. Um, but listeners, they're the two new releases this week, Amulet and Parallel Mothers. Let us know what you make of those if you go and watch them this weekend. At the usual channels, we're on Twitter, at LWLives. You can send us an email, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Up next, we have Film Club. We asked the listeners to pick a Pedro film for us to talk about, and you chose All About My Mother. All About My Mother follows a woman's attempts to overcome deep grief by visiting her ex-lover in Barcelona, where she reawakens into a new maternal role at the head of a surrogate family that includes a pregnant HIV-positive nun, an illustrious star of the stage, and a transgender sex worker. So this was uh, quite a big international uh, success for Pedro in terms of winning the best foreign language feature at the Oscars. Um, but Anna, where does this come in his big filmography is this one of the peaks uh yes 100 percent um so he had been nominated for a best foreign language oscar for women on the verge of a nervous breakdown in 88 which was already kind of a very big thing because spanish directors had not been massively represented at the academy awards uh and then he won for this one and then you know it's that very iconic 90s moment of penelope yelling out pedro when when she <laughs> delivered the the oscar it's a beautiful moment i think it's so sweet um but this is this is probably one of his best melodramas and he was very well known for his comedies he's very outrageous uh kind of late 70s 80s filmmaking and here he just fin he'd done melodramas before um in the 90s and they were successful i mean some of you know the flower of my secret i think is one of my favorite films of his but this finessed it 
to another degree. And this really um, struck a chord with international audiences. And it became kind of, it's it solidified this very female melodramatic ensemble where like Hannah was mentioning about parallel mothers as well. Not a single supporting character feels like a supporting character. They all have their own lives. They all inhabit this world fully. And this also has one of those convoluted, high-intensity plots that only really works in soap operas and in Almodovar movies. <laughs> so the combination of someone of creating just beautiful... Also, this is just gorgeously, gorgeously shot. So it's like this beautiful, all-encompassing world that looks glossy and gorgeous, extremely Spanish without being kind of over-the-top about it. Um, and this high-pitched melodramatic plot with these very very grounded emotional performances by a roster of actresses you've got cecilia roth in the as the protagonist you've got penelope cruz and marisa paredes as the the kind of the supporting characters and it's both kind of the touching on the on the on the underground aspects of society so a lot of it has to do with sex uh, a lot of the story has to do with sex workers a lot of it has to do with um uh with the the transgender character of agrado and and at the same time you're dealing with uh, theater actors and and kind of a very famous a very famous theater actress played by marisa and kind of a, a nurse who deals with uh transplant organs and and the the emotions that connect all of them that wouldn't ordinarily connect these people in society. And also, you know, within his work, it's it's notable because it's the first film where he leaves Madrid. Mm. Almodovar is a filmmaker who's very highly associated with Madrid. It's where it's where he's always uh, it's where he's always lived in the 70s. It's where he's based all of his films. Kind of uh, Almodovar's Madrid has become kind of a staple of his cinema. And here from the it starts there. And then the character, the main character leaves in order to escape and also to find something new. Um, and she goes to Barcelona and and it kind of becomes a story, a separate chapter within her life. And again, just the most beautiful, beautiful musical choices. I don't think we actually talk too much about how Almodovar picks his music, but his taste in music is absolutely on point. And there's some beautiful tunes here alongside the, the original compositions, which... There's a couple of songs that when I whenever I hear them, I instantly think of scenes from All About My Mother. And I'd be remiss to not say to not talk about kind of how much of an impact this film had in terms of expanding his reach. I mean, it picked up, I think, almost every single international film award that was to pick up, you know, for him, for the script, for the actresses. Um, and and it was it was massive. It was kind of a new a new stage in his career and his notoriety and how he was so 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 after this film kind of respected not just as a kind of um enfant terrible of, of spanish cinema or as a comedic director but as someone who is making a big ambitious cinema mm. i just love as well how in his hands the melodrama is this radical inclusive all-encompassing genre that can yes. tell emotional stories about all sorts of people and be transgressive as well so you'd expect that comedies would be subversive but then the way that he from here onwards will use the melodrama to, to similar ends as well 
um it, it's it's just really fascinating so but anna we have you on the podcast and knowing, knowing that you're a pedro fan and expert and hannah you're at the more more of the beginning end of your journey into pedro as, you know, as, as we said and similarly for me i've watched my my fair share but there are still some corners i've not gone down i remember when I was a teenager. I would one day hope of having enough money to get the box sets that came out over here that always seemed to be very much too expensive. I'm sure now you can get them in charity shops for nothing. <laughs> I'll, I'll seek them out. But Anna, is All About My Mother a good starting point or would there be a, a different film to start with or where would you go after this? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. If if you're going to watch your first album whatever movie ever, yes, All About My Mother is an excellent starting point. And I'd say you can go down to different maybe even three different routes with the cinema after this. So if you want to go down kind of the comedy route, I would recommend Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Another big hit, but also probably one of his purest comedies. And then if you want to keep going down the melodrama route, ooh, I want to go down in the past because I feel like his most recent films are, are most are talked about a lot enough. I would go to Law of Desire. Or what have I done to deserve this? So Law of Desire is a film with mostly centered on male characters, actually, with Antonio Banderas and it was Sylvia Pancella. And and it's very much a, a romantic melodrama between a filmmaker and his sort of stalker slash lover. And what have I done to deserve this is probably his first foray into a high end melodrama, but the comedy still overpowers it. And it's fantastic. And it's kind of set in the... Um, essentially in the Spanish banlieue, so kind of the, the a Madrid council estate. And it's about a mother who's just uh, completely uh, overpowered by everything that she needs to do and everything that's happening to her and having to take care of her kids and also earn money and also deal with a pill addiction. So that's a wonderful film uh, from 1984. And Love Desire is 87. And they're very different shades of melodrama, but probably two of my favorite films of his entire filmography. Oh, wow. Thank you. Because, yeah, from maybe All About My Mother onwards, the films would get better distribution and we you know, we'll, we'll, we'll heard about those films and maybe had a chance to see them. Some, uh, certainly the older listeners among us would have. Uh, but uh, And then all, all the way up to films like Pain and Glory, where th- that did get a, a big push for Oscars and everything. Oh, Anna, thank you very much. You know, I am 200 years old, so I was at the <laughs> screenings, at the original screenings of all of these films, Michael. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. Uh, but Anna, should we be excited about this uh, next project that he has coming up, an English language feature? Yes. Oh, my God. How <laughs> fast. I mean, the human voice, if you guys have seen it, mm-hmm. was incredibly joyous and kind of such a beautiful adaptation of that of that monologue. Right. And also a monologue that he's revisited several times throughout his filmography. And I think th- it's it's you know if you've watched all of his films you'll recognize it but it's interesting how much his revisitation of the human voice has changed and and i think that was very much a test run for working with english for working with english speaking performers as well and tilda just naturally belongs in the almodovarian world anyway and i think Kate Blanchett is probably one other actress that just mm-hmm. feels like yes your face completely gels with this visual world and and i'm excited because of what's it's once again uh, adaptations of short stories which is interesting uh, he's done that before with alice monroe and and also because it's going to be an deep a, a filmmaker who's so deeply 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 connected to his culture and his language 
transplanting himself into an American setting, transplanting himself into English, which at the very least is going to be fascinating to see. Mm. And it's good that he's almost held out so long in a way that it wasn't uh, opportunistic or a rash decision that he's waited for the right project to come along. So we'll have to get you back, Anna, when that comes around. It'd be great to hear what you make of that. Um, But listeners, that was all about my mother. We've talked about so many films this week, more Pedro, etc. Let us know what you make of anything we've discussed. And if you go out on your own adventures into Pedro's filmography at LWLies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Next week, Hannah, your most anticipated film of the year, Jackass Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want my scores now before I've seen it? That could be a film that could get you back into the cinema more than once, surely. (laughs) I am so excited to hear it. I'm, I'm so excited to hear Hannah's take on Jackass f- uh, 4, 5, four. 7. 4, 4. Jackass forever. I just, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever shared this, but I actually used to re- tape Jackass, the Jackass show on VHS when it was airing. Incredible. <laughs> I used to watch it all the time. That's how old you are. I'm confused now. I thought you were ageless. Well, I'm like the, I'm like the vampires in the Jim Jarmusch film. I just, I just sit in my little room like Tom Hiddleston, just taping things on antiquated technology. I've been doing that for 200 years. I've just changed locations. <laughs> Terrific. Yes. Yeah, so that's Jackass Forever, as well as the new release Souvenir Part Two. And for Film Club, we're looking at Derek Jarman's The Last of England, starring Tilda Swinton. Anna, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you about the films. Listeners, I'm off next week, so I'll leave you in the capable hands of Leila Latif. But we at Truth and Movies will see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Michael Leader, and my guests this week were Anna Bogatskaya and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by Jake Cunningham and is edited by Steph Watts. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>